The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Jason Hickel. We talked about his book, Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. In part one of the interview, we discussed the comprehensive and all-encompassing character of the ecological crisis, which extends well beyond the issue of CO2 emissions. We also talked about the violent emergence of capitalism and how that process entailed the radical transformation of human subjectivity and how humans relate to the natural world. Finally, we talked about the emergence of gross domestic product as an indicator of economic and societal progress and well-being. Today's show is brought to you by PTO's supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space by Fred Sharman. No human has ever gone farther into space than the moon, a grain of sand about 5.5 inches away from our tiny pea gravel Earth. Are other worlds really possible? Space Forces is a fascinating radical history of space exploration, from the Russian cosmists of the 1890s to the technology billionaires who want to colonise space for their own wealth, Space Forces reveals a completely different story of our relationship with outer space, as well as the dangers of our current direction of extractive capitalism and colonisation. Space Forces, a critical history of life in outer space by Fred Sharman, is out now from Verso Books, and one of their Verso Book Club selections for November. And now to today's interview. Jason Hickel is an economic anthropologist and author, He's professor at the Institute for Environmental Science and Technology at the Autonomous University of Barcelona and visiting senior fellow at the International Inequalities Institute at the London School of Economics. His writing has appeared in The Guardian, Al Jazeera and Foreign Policy, amongst other venues. His most recent book, which was the topic of our conversation, is Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So we're talking just a couple of days before COP26, the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference. The episode will actually be going out after COP is finished, but I wonder if you could say something on the history of of climate summits and and what they have achieved so far in, in, in your opinion. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a sad and depressing record, actually. So there's been sort of public consensus among scientists and widespread knowledge about climate change among governments since the 1970s, right? And, there, and since then, there's been a series of different attempts to reach global agreements, and summit after summit has kind of ticked by, and, uh, and we're still headed in exactly the wrong direction. I mean, emissions have, I mean, up until this recent, this recent recession, basically emissions have continued to rise on a global level. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the scale of the emissions reductions we have to achieve to stay under 1.5 degrees and meet the Paris uh, climate targets is just extraordinary at this point. I mean, we have to achieve total decarbonization by the middle of the century. And for rich countries, it has to be much faster. So we're looking at by 2030 or 2035, which is just a, a dramatic change in in direct in the direction of our civilization in effect and there's there's basically no policy on the table right now that comes anywhere close to achieving that now we can hope that that comes through this cop but but looking at the lay of the land for me i, I don't see that happening i think it is going to be it's going to require a significant mobilization a popular uh, mobilization from social movements and labor unions to force governments to to, to sort of change course cuz it's, it doesn't look to me like it's going to happen voluntarily, right? I mean, the, the, the transition that's required is just too dramatic for, for capitalism to, to, to sustain. And our governments will have to confront entrenched elite interests and entrenched fossil fuel interests. And I, I just don't see the political will for that on the stage right now. No. Uh, what do you make of the various um, net zero uh, commitments that have, that have been made? Yeah, it's totally inadequate, uh, and it's amazing how much how much uh, credence they've received for for these claims. I mean, the the, the first thing to uh, to know here is that um, is that twenty fifty is a is a global average target. That's what that's what the world has to achieve, right? And 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 high income nations have an obligation under the Paris Agreement to move faster than the global average, so that poor nations have more time for the transition, right? Given the fact that high-income nations have, con- have contributed the overwhelming majority of historical emissions and are most capable of achieving uh, a transition because they have extremely high levels of energy use that can be cut down really dramatically, right? So from rich nations, we need to be hearing pledges for zero emissions by 2030 or 20 th- 2035 at the latest, and, and no one's talking about that. And yeah, so that's one thing. The second thing is that the language of net zero is very problematic. <laughs> and um, effectively what it is, is it's a fudge to allow the continued burning of fossil fuels and continued emissions on the understanding that sometime towards the middle of the century, we'll have technology to pull emissions back out of the atmosphere, right? And so it's all banking on some kind of future negative emissions scenario. But scientists are have repeatedly pointed out that this is an extremely dangerous assumption, and the technology they have in mind cannot be scaled. There's no evidence of that. So, and if we if we go down this path of kind of emitting with the hope of being able to clean up later, then we basically lock ourselves into a into a kind of high temperature trajectory from which it'll be impossible to escape. I mean, it's an incredible gamble with the future of human civilization and all of life on this planet, and is unacceptable. And so this is why you get <laughs> you get these crazy performances by our leaders like like look at John Kerry who appeared on British television a couple of months ago and he you know he was like look uh, the US is committing to these dramatic emissions reductions we're going to cut our emissions in half in the next 10 years and they asked how are you going to do that and he said well you know, more than half of those emissions reductions are going to come from technologies that do not yet exist, was his argument. And <laughs> I mean, anyone paying any attention at all should feel this is deeply cynical. And it's wild that anybody accepts this as a reasonable course of action, given the existential threat that we face. So yeah, so basically, net zero by 2050 is just is full of problems. And we need much more, you know, much firmer commitments and much more dramatic action. In the book, you talk about some of the proposed technologies, which, as you say, are, are a long way from from deployment at scale, so-called BECs and uh, you know, direct air capture as well. Could you talk a bit about about those those technologies and, and the problems with them? 
Yeah, so this is remarkable. My, my colleagues and I have been publishing on this recently. So here's the thing with these, with uh, the climate mitigation scenarios that countries are using to make their plans for emissions reductions, right? Now, in these scenarios, there's this assumption that all countries need to continue to grow their economies indefinitely, regardless of how rich they've already become, right? So um, even the US and Switzerland and Norway should continue to pursue economic growth, right? Now, as a consequence of that assumption, because growth makes it more difficult to decarbonize, then policymakers are forced to rely on hopes for negative emissions technologies to sort of square continued growth in high-income nations with the Paris climate targets, right? And so they opt for this kind of science fiction alternative reality to make, to make this make sense, to sort of reconcile this contradiction. And the main, the main technology they have been using up until now, and again, this is all basically speculative, is called BECS, and that's bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And the idea is what you do is you grow these massive plantations for bioenergy crops. As they grow, then they suck carbon out of the atmosphere, right? Like all plants do. Then you harvest them, you, you ship them around the world, turn them into pellets, burn them in power stations, and then you capture the emissions from the smokestacks effectively and store the emissions underground. So this is the carbon capture and storage dimension. And so that, this is basically a, uh, a negative emissions energy source is the idea. So, and this assumption is at the heart of like the vast majority of climate mitigation scenarios that are, that exist today. And, and yet the public doesn't even know about this as like a plan, right? So, and the reason scientists have raised questions about it is because first, the scale of the land required for this is extraordinary. We're looking at three times the size of India. That land will be appropriated almost entirely from the global south. This is going to require rounds of, of dispossession and colonization in the global south to acquire the territory necessary for this. It also requires mass deforestation, shifting agriculture away from food towards biofuels. It's monoculture, right? So it also has a dramatic detrimental effect on biodiversity and soil health, etc. So in an attempt to sort of solve the climate problem, it creates all sorts of other ecological problems and creates food insecurity. Um, it's a disastrous idea. And scientists have been calling, have been calling this out for a long time. So the other major idea is direct air capture, which is basically to build machines that suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And there's already a, a machine like this, a plant like this in Iceland that's operating now. The problem here is that, is that these machines are incredibly energy intensive, right? So in, in order to scale this up, you have to, it basically takes a huge amount of our existing energy capacity, which makes decarbonization more difficult. Effectively, we have to grow the energy system while trying to decarbonize it. And so there's huge questions about this as well. So, the, the, you know, all of this is, is being done, like is being suggested in order to avoid the one thing that we know actually has to happen, which is that rich nations need to actively scale down their energy use, right? And the majority of the energy that rich nations use is in industrial production. And so that means scaling down unnecessary parts of the economy, right? So huge chunks of our economy are organized not around meeting human needs, but around power and capital accumulation and corporate profits and so on. And, um, and so we need to, to start scaling those sectors down, right? SUV production, arms production, planned obsolescence, advertising, fast fashion, to reduce the energy draw that our societies use. And reducing energy use makes it much easier to accomplish a rapid transition to renewables 
it means you're not like fighting an uphill battle, right? The less energy we use, the, the easier it is to, to achieve our goals. So, but that's the one thing that cannot countenance because that effectively poses a significant threat to the growth imperative of capitalism. And that's ultimately what we have to, like, that's the, it's the elephant in the room that we have to sort of confront. On the question of technology and trying to decarbonize through the use of the technologies you describe, or perhaps other technologies, I suspect one counter-argument that would be made would be to say, well, let's look at the coronavirus crisis. We saw the emergence of this devastating threat. And although the threat is, is ongoing and lots of people are still dying, we were able through the very rapid deployment of technology, through the development of a, of a novel vaccine, a number of vaccines, in fact, for coronaviruses, which obviously we didn't have vaccines for, for coronaviruses previously, that this shows that if we commit sufficient investment into, into research and development, we could, we could perhaps achieve pretty dramatic things. And it's a, it's a common complaint of the left, for instance, that, that levels of, of R&D spending are pretty low in, in advanced economies. Yeah, so I mean, I guess there's a there's a couple of crucial things to point out here. The, the the first is that like the vaccine deployments itself did not compromise the objectives somehow of of eradicating of uh, of limiting the spread of the disease, right? Which is what's happening when it comes to Bex and Dax is that they require you know energy and land and resource use, which is exactly the problem we're facing, right? So it's like like they have uh they're they're compromised on a on a kind of deep structural level. Now, of course, these technologies will have to play some kind of role, but it can't be the, the sort of savior technology that policymakers are kind of hoping it will. Now, techno like technology itself is absolutely essential uh, to averting the climate crisis, like the deployment of and advancement of renewable energy technologies, solar winds, you know, batteries, etc., is really essential. And there needs to be like we need you know heavy public mobilization around improving and deploying renewable energy tech. So in this sense, yes, technology is absolutely the answer. It's just that that's, I mean, that's the technology we need to focus on. Now, and the answer is obvious, right? Like we have to deploy renewable energy in order to to reduce emissions and transition ultimately to a, a non-fossil fuel-based energy system. But but again, the problem the, the problem we face is that the more we pursue growth, the more energy we require. And the more energy we require, the more difficult it is to achieve that deployment and cover our energy demand. And so, again, like, it's not our technology that's the problem here. It's growth that's the problem. And that's, uh, that's something that's not part of, of, uh, of the policy discourse, even though it's, uh, it's now an established part of the scientific discourse. And that, you know, that needs to shift. Yeah, I think we'll come back to the question of degrowth and, and how you advocate for it in the book. But I'd like to turn to the introduction and some of the earlier chapters. So the ecological crisis is, tends to primarily still be framed solely in terms of climate and the need to reduce carbon emissions to avoid a, a catastrophic rise in temperature. But at the start of, of your book, you're at pains to emphasise the much broader and more comprehensive nature of the environmental deterioration that we're witnessing that goes well beyond the question of, of CO2 emissions. Could you say something on, on the scale and, and, and breadth of, of the crisis? Yeah, so first, uh, um, I'd like to just mention, uh, like, the scale of the climate crisis, because I feel like most people don't gr actually grasp how significant this is, right? So the key fact to grasp here is that uh, with existing government policies, like ones like policies that have been committed already, we're presently headed for about 2.9 degrees of, of global heating, right? Now, like what happens in a world warmed by 2.9 degrees? We actually have very robust science predicting what that planet will look like. And it doesn't look pretty. Basically, 30 to 50% of species be wiped out, 
okay, which is wild even to think about. 1.5 billion people will be displaced from their homes by droughts, famines, wildfires, etc., etc. The yields of staple crops will decline by, on average, about 30%, triggering what the UN themselves refer to as, and I quote, sustained food supply disruptions globally, which is basically fancy terminology for what amounts to famine. Much of the tropics will become uninhabitable for humans. I mean, like, think about the chaos this will cause. International institutions will collapse. It will be an extremely chaotic world. So, but the crucial thing to understand, and, and remember, like, this is, like, this is what our existing policies, you know, have us headed towards. But the crucial thing to understand is it's not just climate change that we face. This is a broader ecological crisis. Um, we're already overshooting several other planetary boundaries. Okay. The main ones being effectively deforestation and land use change. So basically conversion of, uh, of habitats into industrial agriculture, primarily for, for red meat farming. That's one. And then the other one is, is biodiversity collapse with extinction rates right now at about 100 to 1000 times faster than prior to the industrial revolution. And, and these issues are being caused by excess resource use. Right. So, and that's, and that's an issue that is, is not really part of the broader public discussion. This is not just about an energy problem. It's also about a resource use problem. And here again, there's a tight coupling between resource use and GDP growth. Now, I think the thing to emphasize here is that both of these issues, both climates and resource use issues are being driven overwhelmingly by rich countries. Right. So we can see this very clearly when it comes to emissions. 92% of excess emissions that are causing climate breakdown right now have been contributed by rich countries, historically speaking. So they, so effectively rich countries have enriched themselves through a process of what, what amounts to basically atmospheric colonization, appropriating the atmospheric commons on which all of life depends for their own enrichments, right? And then in terms of resource use, rich countries use about four times in excess of sustainable per capita levels. And the majority of this excess resource use is actually net appropriated from the global south. And what that means is that the damage of northern resource use is basically offshored to the resource frontiers of the global south where it's kind of externalized and harms communities that we have no relationship with, right? And therefore, it's kind of beyond our beyond our politics. So in both of these key respects, you know, ecological breakdown is, you know, represents processes of colonization, atmospheric colonization, ecosystem colonization, and the damages are playing out along colonial lines with the majority of the damage afflicting the global south, communities that have done basically nothing to cause the crisis in the first place. Yes. And I mean, you, you argue that for some societies in, in the global south, that whilst pursuing a, a global path to degrowth, that they, it may well be appropriate for them to be increasing their, their resource use. Yeah, exactly. So there's, um, there's, there's lots of poor countries that basically effectively underuse resources and energy, right? Like they, 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 they don't have, they don't have access to the resources and energy necessary to, to meet human needs at a high standard, right? So, and, and they're well within planetary boundaries. They're well under. And so there's, there's plenty of room for them to increase their, their resource use towards meeting human needs. Then there's another strata of countries that actually does mobilize enough resources and energy, but because they're basically subject to the rules of the world economy that tend to favor the interests of rich countries, huge chunks of their energy and resource use are mobilized around producing for northern consumption, right? Rather than producing for, uh, for meeting human needs. And so even in countries that do have 
moderate levels of resource use that could meet human needs, those resources are being diverted for excess northern consumption, right? So, I mean, think, for example, about like Bangladesh, right? Huge chunks of their resources and labor and energy are organized around sweatshop production for fast fashion in the global north. The garment industry, yeah. Exactly, right? So so under capitalism, under uh, sort of globalized capitalism, we have this incredibly irrational use of energy and resources where it's mobilized uh, overwhelmingly around, around elite elite consumption and accumulation rather than around meeting human needs. And that's a major driver of the ecological crisis. Hannah Arendt is one of the most renowned political thinkers of the 20th century, and her work has never been more relevant than it is today. In her first book, Samantha Rose Hill weaves together new biographical details, archival documents, poems and correspondence, to reveal a woman whose passion for the life of the mind was nourished by her love of the world. Hill's compelling new biography provides an accessible introduction for those coming to Arendt for the first time, while offering new insights for those familiar with her work. Hannah Arendt by Samantha Rose Hill is out now from Reaction Books in their Critical Lives series. In the introduction, you also point out that it can be quite seductive to think that at some point, some kind of climate-related event will occur that will be so devastating or so incontrovertible as, as proof of the seriousness of the situation that it will spur people and governments to take very radical measures. But you write in the book that the danger is that we will all be lulled into waiting around for the facts to become more extreme. Once we reach that point, we tell ourselves we'll finally get around to doing something about it but the ultimate eco-fact is never going to arrive. Can you explain why you think it's, it's unlikely that we'll see some kind of a Damascene moment that, that forces an appropriate response? And Because I wonder, I wonder if it could be argued that although we're not seeing the policy we need, in terms of public consciousness, they, it does feel like there's been something of a shift in, in, in recent years. And perhaps the, the, the net zero commitments would seem to be reflective of that, even if they're not, if it's a little disingenuous. Yes, I completely agree. There's been a shift, and that's and that's good to see. Um, yeah, this uh, this argument I have in the book about ecofacts <laughs> actually is a reflection of work from the philosopher Timothy Morton, and he he basically argues that our obsession with ecofacts is sort of similar to the nightmares suffered by people with PTSD. Right. So during PTSD dreams, you re- you sort of relive your trauma over and over. And Freud thought this was an attempt to, to try to sort of insert yourself into the moment right before the trauma happens so that you have some kind of hope of averting it. But it never works, right? You wake up screaming. Yeah, you just relive it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Morton's claim is that by constantly repeating ecofacts, you know, like the ones that I began with, <laughs> on some subconscious level, we're, we're sort of trying to put ourselves into a fictional moment right before the collapse happens so that we can do something about it. And then as a result, these, these ecofacts carry a double message, right? On the, one, on the one hand, they kind of urge us to wake up and act, but on the other hand, they, they like imply that the trauma is not yet here and there's therefore still time. And it's that dimension, the idea that there's still time that's somehow comforting. And he fears that we get lulled into waiting for the facts to become more extreme, right? Do you think that that accounts partly why climate takes such prominence in the, in the discussion rather than some of the other issues that you're talking about, you know, whether it's mass extinction or, or, or soil erosion or, and, and so on? That it's, is it easier perhaps to think of climate as something that's going to hit us in the future compared to some of these other issues? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, of course, um, of course, the impact of climate breakdown is already a, an apocalyptic nightmare for lots of people on the planet. I mean, something like 30 million people, uh, in 2020 alone were displaced by climate related events, almost all of them in the, in the global south, right? So one of the reasons that we're not really aware is because, is because the impact is happening in the global south and we, and that doesn't make it into our media, right? But it is literally already Mad Max, <laughs> right? Um, for, for lots of people. So I think that's one thing. I don't know. Like, I, I like the way that Timothy Morton frame, uh, frames this, but I think there's more to it than just kind of a psychoanalytic explanation. I think that one of, one of the reasons that we don't act or that our leaders have failed to act so far and we have failed to push them effectively is because we don't grasp on a broad level that the crisis is ultimately being driven by our economic system, right? Capitalism, which intrinsically requires perpetual expansion and a perpetually increasing extraction of resources and energy. And yeah, so it's basically a juggernaut that is devouring the living world for the benefit of a small sliver of humanity. And we, we just haven't, like, it's not part of our discourse yet to talk about that and to imagine an alternative. And so the sooner we, we get to that point, I think, the better our chances of survival. That brings us on to the first chapter of the book, perhaps, which looks at the uh, the rise of capitalism. And in that chapter, you seek to counter the kinds of conventional narratives which describe capitalism as emerging within feudal societies and, and eventually putting an end to feudal social relations. And instead, you argue that capitalism developed in response to the peasant revolts that were, in fact, already tearing feudalism uh, apart. Can you say something on that alternative account of, of capitalism's eventual emergence and, and also the uh, extraordinary violence that attended uh, that process that you described? Yeah, I think this history is so important. I mean, it's it's really impossible to understand capitalism and where it came from without understanding this history. So, yeah, so feudalism. It's true that capitalism emerges from the collapse of feudalism, but it's not how people think of it. <laughs> uh, so, so feudalism obviously was a brutal system where peasant farmers were exploited as serfs on the estates of wealthy landowners, right? Now, peasants fought against the feudal system in a series of extraordinary revolutionary uprisings and eventually succeeded in basically overthrowing it in around about the late 1300s. And in the place of feudalism, like as feudalism collapsed, the sort of peasant revolutionaries established the seeds of a more egalitarian, more democratic society where people controlled their own lands along with collectively managed commons, right? Forests, pastures, rivers, etc. And the key principle of, of this sort of emergent society was that everyone should have access to the resources necessary to live, right? The resources necessary for, uh, for survival. And this is the, the, the key principle of the commons. And during this period, we know that standards of living improved, right? In the wake of feudalism, nutrition improved, Wages go up, rents go down. Life is better for, for the working classes and the peasantry of Western Europe. But the elites were deeply displeased with this turn of events because they were no longer able to exploit cheap labor and pile up the profits they'd enjoyed under feudalism, right? So they needed a way to, to sort of push wages back down. And they did that by engaging in a process known as enclosure, right? Effectively removing peasants from their lands and fencing off the commons for their own private use. And this was an extremely violent process. I mean, it'd be difficult actually to paint uh, an accurate picture uh, of how of how devastating it was. Whole villages were razed, crops were destroyed, burned, 
hundreds of thousands of people were displaced. It basically created a kind of massive internal refugee crisis in, in England and Scotland and much of Western Europe. And the effect of this was that suddenly for the first time in history, and this is so important to emphasize, for the first time in history, people were cut off from the land entirely and had no access to the means of survival except to sell themselves for wages. And that is the defining feature of, of capitalism, right? So it created this class of desperate landless proletarians who flooded into the cities and lived in slums where they provided basically the cheap labor that fueled the Industrial Revolution. So the rise of capitalism and the Industrial Revolution in Europe depended fundamentally on this the brutal violence of enclosure. And for some reason, that's like fallen out of the fairy tales that we tell ourselves about capitalism, right? We, we like to think of it as just a system of markets and trade, when in fact, markets and trade existed for thousands of years before capitalism. And we have to account somehow for its rise in the 1500s. And um, enclosure is the answer. Yes, I mean, it, it makes me think of the Soviet Union and, and the Eastern Bloc in that regard, because obviously the, the, the Soviet Union was, was associated with, and this is not to de defend the Soviet Union as a social system, you know, I, I don't think it's any sort of model at all, but obviously its development was associated with extraordinary violence, particularly the, the Stalinist period. Then in the later period, obviously there's there's intense repression, there's, there's lack of freedom and all sorts of, you know, deeply unpleasant features, but it is nonetheless less violent than that early period, which is also associated with a, a project of internal capital accumulation. And one can imagine that, you know, had the Soviet system existed for a few more hundred years, perhaps it might be a li little bit more like capitalism. It might seem, you know, not quite as brutal as it once was, at least in a certain part of the world, but it would have that violent prehistory. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, you know, people like to to compare the the violence of, well, people like to, to, to think about the violence of uh, socialist states and and warn that you know we should we should never attempt such a thing because it's so bad. But then when you look at the history of capitalism, I mean, it's extremely violent. Enclosure being only one manifestation. I mean, the entire European slave trade was conducted under the aegis of capitalism. The entire colonial project was was organized in the name of capitalism. Right? Brutal wars of conquest and dispossession, and uh, policy induced mass famine all in the name of capital accumulation. So in the same way that we should not, you know, nobody should glorify the history of the Soviet Union, so too we should not glorify the history of capitalism because it's deeply problematic. And I think recognizing that is really essential to having the intellectual freedom to imagine a different kind of system for the 21st century. On that point about colonialism, so, so you describe the colonial project as, as emerging, in fact, from the response to peasant uprisings, which, as you say, had reduced the ability of, of, of elites to accumulate. And, and you very much paired the, the project of, of enclosure in the North with the project of, of colonialism in, in, in the South. Can you, can you talk about that in the way in which those processes were, were very intertwined? Yeah, they were, so, they were totally intertwined. It's impossible to understand the rise of capitalism without understanding not only enclosure, but also the colonial project, right? So basically, the growth imperative of capitalism in Europe in these early centuries required cheap labor and resources well beyond what Europe itself could supply. So at exactly the same time that this backlash was happening against the peasant revolutionaries in Europe towards enclosure, European elites were also colonizing much of the global south. Like, there wasn't even a lag, right? Like, it, it, it was happening at the same time as part of the same project of elite accumulation. And this is, this is, this is just obvious when you look at ac the economic history of, of capitalism. The industrial revolution in England was based largely on textiles, which depended utterly 
on one product, that being cotton, right? Cotton is not grown in England or anywhere in Western Europe. It was grown in the Americas on land stolen from indigenous people with the labor of enslaved Africans. I mean, in this one commodity, which is the core of England's industrialization, we find uh, embodied the colonial project and the project of mass enslavements. And then there's sugar, which also came from New World plantations, which was used to provide cheap calories for industrial workers in, in, uh, in Western Europe. And then also silver extracted from the Andes, you know, grain appropriated in massive quantities from colonial India, literally from the mouths of, of peasant farmers, countless other resources from across the global south, uh, all of it taken by means of violence and coercion, right? And then we have to remember that, like, like in addition to the dimension of mass enslavement, which was, of course, huge, I mean, a huge trade, uh, trade in human beings, was also a more mundane exploitation of the labor of colonized peoples through systems of taxation, right? So, and this is how it worked, basically, like, when you arrive into a colonial territory and you want people to work in, on your plantations and in your mines, how do you get them to when they have their existing subsistence economies intact that are providing them with everything they need? The only way to get them to work in your miserable system, right, is, is to tax them in the colonial currency, which of course they don't have. And the only way to, for them to get that currency is to produce things that colonizers will then buy, right? And so the taxation system induced an artificial scarcity of currency, which then forced entire production systems to shift from producing for domestic human needs towards producing for the colonial market. And the labor of huge sways of the global south was then reorganized around that purpose. So I think that this is, like, all of this is an important corrective, right? People have the tendency to think of capitalism as separate from colonialism and mass enslavements. But the reality is that they are part of the same package and operated together for most of the past 500 years. Colonization and mass enslavement was the mechanism by which most of the world was roped into the European capitalist system. And, and we have to grasp that crucial history, I think. Although capitalism is, is of course, a, a distinct economic and, and political system, in a lot of mainstream commentary, Capitalism tends to be dehistoricized and, and naturalized by pointing to the existence of, of markets and, and, and of money across a, a huge stretch of, of human history preceding the, the capitalist era. Can you explain why, as, as you argue in the book, it's a mistake to view capitalism and, and markets in this way as almost synonymous? And can you talk about the work that that conflation is doing in, in, in dehistoricizing capitalism? Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, um, because of this conflation, you can't criticize capitalism <laughs> or suggest we have a different kind of economy because immediately people will say, well, no, it's just markets and trade. And those are obviously, you know, innocents. Uh, and when people have tried not to do that, it's failed. Exactly, right. So it's just markets and trade. These are innocent, and people have been doing it for eons, right? And so the idea is that somehow capitalism is like embedded in human nature itself. Well, this assumption totally conflicts with what economic historians very clearly point out, which is that capitalism is only 500 years old. So how do you account for the fact that for, for several hundred thousand years, human beings had different kinds of economies? And then there was suddenly this break where capitalism emerges and becomes extremely powerful and dominant across the whole planet. And so you have to somehow historicize that, understand, you know, what is it that makes capitalism distinctive? And the key feature is simply this, that it is, a, it is an economic system that is not organized around meeting human needs, but rather around capital accumulation, 
It, I mean, it's literally there on the tin, <laughs> and um, and uh, and perpetual growth, right? Growth again, not to to provision for human needs, but growth for its own sake, or rather for the sake of capital accumulation. It's the first intrinsically expansionary economic system that has ever existed, and uh, uh, you know, until we can understand the distinctiveness of capital and and how this and what the logic of the system is, I think it's very difficult for us to imagine, you know, an alternative. So, grasp again, grasping that history is essential. I think. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.